Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 7 Portrait of a Gentleman. They walked in silence for a little, until they had left the house and the gardens well behind them. In front of them and to the right, the park dipped and then rose slowly, shutting out the rest of the world. A thick belt of trees on the left divided them from the main road. "'Ever been here before?' said Antony suddenly. "'Oh, rather. Dozens of times. I meant just here where we are now. Or do you stay indoors and play billiards all the time?' "'Oh, Lord, no.' "'Well, tennis and things. So many people with beautiful parks never by any chance use them, and all the poor devils passing by on the dusty road think how lucky the owners are to have them, and imagine doing all sorts of jolly things inside.' He pointed to the right. "'Ever been over there?' Bill laughed as if a little ashamed. "'Well, not very much. I've often been along here, of course, because it's the short way to the village.' "'Yes. All right. Now tell me something about Mark. What sort of things?' "'Well, never mind about his being your host, or about your being a perfect gentleman, or anything like that. Cut out the manners for men, and tell me what you think of Mark, and how you like staying with him, and how many rows your little house-party has had this week, and how you get on with Cayley, and all the rest of it.' Bill looked at him eagerly. "'I say!' Are you being the complete detective?" "'Well, I wanted a new profession,' smiled the other. "'What fun! I mean—' he corrected himself apologetically. "'One oughtn't to say that, when there's a dead man in the house, and one's host—' He broke off a little uncertainly, and then rounded off his period by saying, "'By Jove! What a rum show it is! Good Lord!' Well said Antony. Carry on, Mark. What do I think of him? Yes. Bill was silent, wondering how to put into words thoughts which had never formed themselves very definitely in his own mind. What did he think of Mark? Seeing his hesitation, Antony said, I ought to have warned you that nothing you say will be taken down by the reporters, so you needn't bother about a split infinitive or two. Talk about anything you like, how you like. Well, I'll give you a start. Which do you enjoy more, a weekend here or at the Barrington's, say? Well, of course, that would depend. Take it that she was there in both cases. Ass! said Bill, putting an elbow into Antony's ribs. It's a little difficult to say, he went on. Of course, they do you awfully well here. Yes, 
I don't think I know any house where things are so comfortable. One's room, the food, drinks, cigars, the way everything's arranged, all that sort of thing. They look after you awfully well. Yes? Yes. He repeated it slowly to himself, as if it had given him a new idea. They look after you awfully well. Well, that's just what it is about Mark. That's one of his little ways. Weaknesses. Looking after you. Arranging things for you? Yes. Of course, it's a delightful house, and there's plenty to do, and opportunities for every game or sport that's ever been invented. And as I say, one gets awfully well done. But with it all, Tony, there's a faint sort of feeling that, well, that one is on parade, as it were. You've got to do as you're told. How do you mean? Well, Mark fancies himself rather at arranging things. He arranges things, and it's understood that all the guests fall in with the arrangements. For instance, Betty, Miss Calladine, and I were going to play a single just before tea the other day. Tennis. She's frightfully hot stuff at tennis, and backed herself to take me on level. I'm rather erratic, you know. Mark saw us going out with our rackets and asked us what we were going to do. Well, he got up a little tournament for us after tea, handicaps all arranged by him, and everything ruled out neatly in red and black ink, prizes and all, quite decent ones, you know. He'd had the lawn specially cut and marked for it. Well, of course Betty and I wouldn't have spoiled the court, and we'd have been quite ready to play again after tea. I had to give a half-fifteen according to his handicap. But somehow— Bill stopped and shrugged his shoulders. It didn't quite fit in? No. It spoilt the effect of his tournament. Took the edge off it just a little, I suppose, he felt. So we didn't play. He laughed and added, It would have been as much as our place was worth to have played. Do you mean you wouldn't have been asked here again? Probably. Well, I don't know. Not for some time, anyway. Really, Bill? Oh, rather. He's a devil for taking offence. That Miss Norris, did you see her? She's done for herself. I don't mind betting what you like that she never comes here again. Why? Bill laughed to himself. We were all in it, really. At least Betty and I were. There's supposed to be a ghost attached to the house. Lady Anne Patton. Ever hear of her? Never. Mark told us about her at dinner one night. He rather liked the idea of there being a ghost in his house, you know. Except that he doesn't believe in ghosts. I think he wanted all of us to believe in her. And yet he was annoyed with Betty and Mrs. Calladine for believing in ghosts at all. Rum chap. Well, anyhow, Miss Norris. She's an actress. Some actress, too. Dressed up as a ghost and played the fool a bit. And poor Mark was frightened out of his life. Just for a moment, you know. What about the others? Well, Betty and I knew. In fact, I told her. Miss Norris, I mean, not to be a silly ass. Knowing Mark. Mrs. Calladine wasn't there. Betty wouldn't let her be. As for the Major, I don't believe anything would frighten him. Where did the ghost appear? Down by the bowling green. That's supposed to be its haunt, you know. We were all down there in the moonlight, pretending to wait for it. Do you know the bowling green? No. I'll show it to you after dinner. 
I wish you would. Was Mark very angry afterwards?' "'Oh, Lord, yes. Sulked for a whole day. Well, he's just like that.' "'Was he angry with all of you?' "'Oh, yes, sulky, you know. This morning?' "'Oh, no. He got over it. He generally does. He's just like a child. That's really it, Tony. He's like a child in some ways. As a matter of fact, he was unusually bucked with himself this morning, and yesterday.' "'Yesterday?' "'Rather. We all said we'd never seen him in such form.' Is he generally in form? He's quite good company, you know, if you take him the right way. He's rather vain and childish, well, like I've been telling you, and self-important, but quite amusing in his way, and—Bill broke off suddenly. I say, you know, it really is the limit talking about your host like this. Don't think of him as your host. Think of him as a suspected murderer with a warrant out against him. "'Oh, but that's all rot, you know.' "'It's the fact, Bill.' "'Yes, but I mean, he didn't do it. He wouldn't murder anybody.' "'It's a funny thing to say, but, well, he's not big enough for it. He's got his faults, like all of us. But they aren't on that scale.' "'One can kill anybody in a childish fit of temper.' Bill grunted assent, but without prejudice to Mark. "'All the same,' he said. "'I can't believe it. That he would do it all deliberately, I mean.' "'Suppose it was an accident, as Cayley says. Would he lose his head and run away?' Bill considered for a moment. "'Yes. I really think he might, you know. He nearly ran away when he saw the ghost. Of course that's different, rather.' "'Oh, I don't know.' In each case it's a question of obeying your instincts instead of your reason. They had left the open land and were following a path through the bordering trees. Two abreast was uncomfortable, so Antony dropped behind, and further conversation was postponed until they were outside the boundary fence and in the high road. The road sloped gently down to the village of Waldheim, a few red-roofed cottages, and the grey tower of a church showing above the green. Well, now— said Antony, as they stepped out more quickly. "'What about Cayley?' "'How do you mean, what about him?' "'I want to see him. I can see Mark perfectly, thanks to you, Bill. You were wonderful. Now let's have Cayley's character. Cayley from within.' Bill laughed in pleased embarrassment, and protested that he was not a blooming novelist. "'Besides,' he added, Mark's easy. Cayley's one of these heavy, quiet people, who might be thinking about anything. Mark gives himself away. Ugly, black-jawed devil, isn't he? Some women like that type of ugliness. Yes, that's true. Between ourselves, I think there's one here that does. Rather a pretty girl at Jalen's. He waved his left hand. Down that way. What's Jalen's? Well, I suppose it used to be a farm, belonging to a bloke called Jalland, but now it's a country cottage belonging to a widow called Norbury. Mark and Cayley used to go there a good deal together. Miss Norbury, the girl, has been here once or twice for tennis. Seems to prefer Cayley to the rest of us. But, of course, he hadn't much time for that sort of thing. What sort of thing? 
walking about with a pretty girl and asking if she's been to any theatres lately. He nearly always has something to do. Mark kept him busy? Yes. Mark never seemed quite happy unless he had Cayley doing something for him. He was quite lost and helpless without him. And funnily enough, Cayley seemed lost without Mark. Was he fond of him? Yes, I should say so. In a protective kind of way. He'd sized Mark up, of course, his vanity, his self-importance, his amateurishness, and all the rest of it, but he liked looking after him. And he knew how to manage him. Yes. What sort of terms was he on with the guests? You and Miss Norris and all of them. Just polite and rather silent, you know, keeping himself to himself. We didn't see so very much of him, except at meals. We were here to enjoy ourselves, and, well, he wasn't. He wasn't there when the ghost walked? No. I heard Mark calling for him when he went back to the house. I expect Cayley stroked down his feathers a bit, and told him that girls will be girls. Hallo, here we are. They went into the inn, and while Bill made himself pleasant to the landlady, Antony went upstairs to his room. It appeared that he had not very much packing to do after all. He returned his brushes to his bag, glanced round to see that nothing else had been taken out, and went down again to settle his bill. He had decided to keep on his room for a few days, partly to save the landlord and his wife the disappointment of losing a guest so suddenly, partly in case he found it undesirable later on to remain at the Red House. For he was taking himself seriously as a detective. Indeed, he took himself seriously, while getting all the fun out of it which was possible, at every new profession he adopted. And he felt that there might come a time after the inquest, say, when he could not decently remain at the Red House as a guest. A friend of Bill's, enjoying the hospitality of Mark or Cayley, whichever was to be regarded as his host, without forfeiting his independent attitude towards the events of that afternoon. At present, he was staying in the house merely as a necessary witness, and since he was there Cayley could not object to him using his eyes. But if, after the inquest, it appeared that there was still work for a pair of independent and very keen eyes to do, then he must investigate either with his host's approval, or from beneath the roof of some other host—the landlord of the George, for instance, who had no feelings in the matter. For of one thing Antony was certain—Cayley knew more than he professed to know. That is to say, he knew more than he wanted other people to know he knew. Antony was one of the other people. If, therefore, he was for trying to find out what it was that Cayley knew— he could hardly expect Cayley's approval of his labours. It would be the George, then, for Antony, after the inquest. What was the truth? Not necessarily discreditable to Cayley, even though he were hiding something. All that could be said against him at the moment was that he had gone the longest way round to get into the locked office, and that this did not fit in with what he had told the inspector but it did fit in with the theory that he had been an accessory after the event, and that he wanted, while appearing to be in a hurry, to give his cousin as much time as possible in which to escape. That might not be the true solution, but it was at least a workable one. The theory which he had suggested to the inspector was not. However, there would be a day or two before the inquest, 
in which Antony could consider all these matters from within the red house. The car was at the door. He got in with Bill. The landlord put his bag on the front seat next to the chauffeur, and they drove back. End of chapter 7「This LibriVox recording Reading by Kristen Hughes The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne Chapter 8 Do You Follow Me, Watson? Antony's bedroom overlooked the park at the back of the house. The blinds were not yet drawn while he was changing his clothes for dinner, and at various stages of undress he would pause and gaze out of the window, sometimes smiling to himself, sometimes frowning, as he turned over in his mind all the strange things that he had seen that day. He was sitting on his bed in shirt and trousers, absently smoothing down his thick black hair with his brushes, when Bill shouted an, Hello! through the door and came in. "'I say, buck up, old boy, I'm hungry,' he said. Antony stopped smoothing himself and looked up at him thoughtfully. "'Where's Mark?' he said. "'Mark? You mean Cayley?' Antony corrected himself with a little laugh. "'Yes, I mean Cayley. Is he down? I say, I shan't be a moment, Bill.' He got up from the bed and went on briskly with his dressing. "'Oh, by the way,' said Bill, taking his place on the bed, "'your idea about the keys is a washout.' "'Why, how do you mean?' "'I went down just now and had a look at them. We were asses not to have thought of it when we came in. The library key is outside, but all the others are inside.' "'Yes, I know.' "'You devil! I suppose you did think of it, then?' "'I did, Bill,' said Antony apologetically. "'Father! I hoped you'd forgotten. Well, that knocks your theory on the head, doesn't it?' "'I never had a theory. I only said that if they were outside, it would probably mean that the office key was outside, and that in that case Cayley's theory was knocked on the head.' "'Well, now it isn't, and we don't know anything. Some were outside and some inside, and there you are. It makes it much less exciting.' When you were talking about it on the lawn, I really got quite keen on the idea of the key being outside and Mark taking it in with him. "'It's going to be exciting enough,' said Antony mildly, as he transferred his pipe and tobacco into the pocket of his black coat. "'Well, let's come down. I'm ready now.' Cayley was waiting for them in the hall. He made some polite inquiry as to the guest's comfort and the three of them fell into a casual conversation about houses in general, and the Red House in particular. "'You were quite right about the keys,' said Bill during a pause. He was less able than the other two, perhaps because he was younger than they, to keep away from the subject which was uppermost in the minds of them all. "'Keys?' said Cayley blankly. "'We were wondering whether they were outside or inside.' "'Oh, oh, yes.' He looked slowly round the hall, at the different doors, and then smiled in a friendly way at Antony. 
We both seem to have been right, Mr. Gillingham. So we don't get much farther. No. He gave a shrug. I just wondered, you know. I thought it was worth mentioning. Oh, quite. Not that you would have convinced me, you know. Just as Elsie's evidence doesn't convince me. Elsie? said Bill excitedly. Antony looked inquiringly at him, wondering who Elsie was. One of the housemaids, explained Cayley. You didn't hear what she told the inspector? Of course, as I told Birch, girls of that class make things up. But he seemed to think she was genuine. What was it? said Bill. Cayley told them of what Elsie had heard through the office door that afternoon. You were in the library then, of course, said Antony, rather to himself than to the other. She might have gone through the hall without your hearing. Oh, I've no doubt she was there, and heard voices. Perhaps heard those very words, but— He broke off, and then added impatiently, It was accidental. I know it was accidental. What's the good of talking as if Mark was a murderer? Dinner was announced at that moment, and as they went in he added, What's the good of talking about it at all, if it comes to that? What indeed? said Antony, and to Bill's great disappointment, they talked of books and politics during the meal. Cayley made an excuse for leaving them as soon as their cigars were alight. He had business to attend to, as was natural. Bill would look after his friend. Bill was only too willing. He offered to beat Antony at billiards, to play him at piquet, to show him the garden by moonlight, or indeed to do anything else with him that he required. "'Thank the Lord you're here,' he said piously. "'I couldn't have stood it alone.' "'Let's go outside,' suggested Antony. "'It's quite warm. Somewhere where we can sit down, right away from the house.' I want to talk to you. Good man. What about the bowling green? Oh, you were going to show me that anyhow, weren't you? Is it somewhere we can talk without being overheard? Rather. The ideal place, you'll see. They came out of the front door and followed the drive to the left. Coming from Waldheim, Antony had approached the house that afternoon from the other side. The way they were going now would take them out at the opposite end of the park on the high road to Stanton, a country town some three miles away. They passed by a gate in a gardener's lodge, which marked the limit of what auctioneers like to call the ornamental grounds of the estate. And then the open park was before them. "'Sure we haven't missed it?' said Antony. The park lay quietly in the moonlight on either side of the drive, wearing a little way ahead of them a deceptive air of smoothness which retreated always as they advanced. "'Rum, isn't it?' said Bill. "'An absurd place for a bowling green. But I suppose it was always here.' "'Yes, but always where? It's short enough for golf, perhaps, but—hullo!' They had come to the place. The road bent round to the right, but they kept straight on, over a broad grass path for nearly twenty yards, and there in front of them was the green— a dry ditch, ten feet wide and six feet deep surrounded it, except in the one place where the path went forward. Two or three grass steps led down to the green, on which there was a long wooden bench for the benefit of spectators. "'Yes. It hides itself very nicely,' said Antony. "'Where do you keep the bowls?' 
in a sort of summer-house place, round here. They walked along the edge of the green until they came to it, a low wooden bunk which had been built into one wall of the ditch. Mmm, jolly view. Bill laughed. Nobody sits there. It's just for keeping things out of the rain. They finished their circuit of the green. Just in case anybody's in the ditch, said Antony, and then sat down on the bench. Now then, said Bill, we are alone. Fire ahead. Antony smoked thoughtfully for a little. Then he took his pipe out of his mouth and turned to his friend. "'Are you prepared to be the complete Watson?' he asked. "'Watson?' "'Do you follow me, Watson? That one. Are you prepared to have quite obvious things explained to you? To ask futile questions? To give me chances of scoring off you? To make brilliant discoveries of your own two or three days after I have made them myself? All that kind of thing. Because it all helps.' "'My dear Tony,' said Bill delightedly, "'need you ask?' Antony said nothing, and Bill went on happily to himself. "'I perceive from the strawberry mark on your shirt-front that you had strawberries for dessert. "'Holmes, you astonish me. Tut, tut, you know my methods. Where is the tobacco? The tobacco is in the Persian slipper. Can I leave my practice for a week? I can.' Antony smiled and went on smoking. After waiting hopefully for a minute or two, Bill said in a firm voice, "'Well, then, Holmes, I feel bound to ask you if you have deduced anything. Also, whom do you suspect?' Antony began to talk. "'Do you remember?' he said. "'One of Holmes' little scores over Watson about the number of steps up to the Baker Street lodging?' Poor old Watson had been up and down them a thousand times, but he had never thought of counting them, whereas Holmes had counted them as a matter of course, and knew that there were seventeen, and that was supposed to be the difference between observation and non-observation. Watson was crushed again, and Holmes appeared to him more amazing than ever. Now, it always seems to me that in that matter Holmes was the ass, and Watson the sensible person. What on earth is the point of keeping in your head an unnecessary fact like that? If you really want to know at any time the number of steps to your lodging, you can ring up your landlady and ask her. I've been up and down the steps of the club a thousand times, but if you asked me to tell you at this moment how many steps there are, I couldn't do it. Could you? I certainly couldn't, said Bill. But if you really wanted to know— said Antony casually, with a sudden change of voice. I could find out for you without even bothering to ring up the hall porter. Bill was puzzled as to why they were talking about the club steps, but he felt it his duty to say that he wanted to know how many there were. Right, said Antony. I'll find out. He closed his eyes. I'm walking up St. James Street, he said slowly. Now I've come to the club, and I'm going past the smoking-room. Windows. One, two, three, four. Now I'm at the steps. I turn in and begin going up them. One, two, three, four, five, six. Then a broad step. Six, seven, eight, nine. 
another broad step. Nine, ten, eleven. Eleven, I'm inside. Good morning, Rogers. Fine day again. With a little start he opened his eyes and came back again to his present surroundings. He turned to Bill with a smile. Eleven, he said. Count them next time you're there. Eleven, and now I hope I shall forget it again. Bill was distinctly interested. "'That's rather hot,' he said. "'Expound.' "'Well, I can't explain it. Whether it's something in the actual eye, or something in the brain, or what. But I have got rather an uncanny habit of recording things unconsciously. You know that game where you look at a tray full of small objects for three minutes, and then turn away and try to make a list of them?' It means a devil of a lot of concentration for the ordinary person, if he wants to get his list complete. But in some odd way, I managed to do it without concentration at all. I mean that my eyes seem to do it without the brain consciously taking any part. I could look at the tray, for instance, and talk to you about golf at the same time, and still get my list right. I should think that's rather a useful gift for an amateur detective. You ought to have gone into the profession before. Well, it is rather useful. It's rather surprising, you know, to a stranger. Let's surprise Cayley with it, shall we? How? Well, let's ask him. Antony stopped and looked at Bill comically. Let's ask him what he's going to do with the key of the office. For a moment Bill did not understand. "'The key of the office?' he said vaguely. "'You don't mean—Tony! What do you mean? Good God! Do you mean that Cayley? But what about Mark?' "'I don't know where Mark is. That's another thing I want to know. But I'm quite certain that he hasn't got the key of the office with him, because Cayley's got it.' "'Are you sure?' "'Quite.' Bill looked at him wonderingly. "'I say,' he said almost pleadingly, "'don't tell me that you can see into people's pockets and all that sort of thing as well.' Antony laughed and denied it cheerfully. "'Then how do you know?' "'You're the perfect Watson, Bill. You take to it quite naturally. Properly speaking, I oughtn't to explain till the last chapter. But I always think that that's so unfair. So here goes.' Of course, I don't really know that he's got it, but I do know that he had it. I know that when I came on him this afternoon, he had just locked the door and put the key in his pocket. You mean that you saw him at the time, but you've only just remembered it, reconstructed it in the way you were explaining just now? No, I didn't see him, but I did see something. I saw the key of the billiard-room. Where? outside the billiard-room door. Outside? But it was inside when we looked just now. Exactly. Who put it there? Obviously Cayley. But— Let's go back to this afternoon. I don't remember noticing the billiard-room key at the time. I must have done so without knowing. Probably when I saw Cayley banging at the door I may have wondered subconsciously whether the key of the room next to it would fit. Something like that, I dare say. Well, 
when I was sitting out by myself on that seat just before you came along, I went over the whole scene in my mind, and I suddenly saw the billiard-room key there outside, and I began to wonder if the office key had been outside too. When Cayley came up I told you my idea, and you were both interested, but Cayley was just a shade too interested. I dare say you didn't notice it, but he was. By Jove! Well, of course that proved nothing, and the key business didn't really prove anything, because whatever side of the door the other keys were, Mark might have locked his own private room from the inside sometimes. But I piled it on and pretended that it was enormously important, and quite altered the case altogether, and having got Cayley thoroughly anxious about it, I told him that we should be well out of the way for the next hour or so and that he would be alone in the house to do whatever he liked about it. And, as I expected, he couldn't resist it. He altered the keys, and gave himself away entirely. But the library key was still outside. Why didn't he alter that? Because he's a clever devil. For one thing, the inspector had been in the library, and might possibly have noticed it already. And for another, Antony hesitated. "'What?' said Bill, after waiting for him to go on. "'It's only guesswork, but I fancy that Cayley was thoroughly upset about the key business. He suddenly realized that he had been careless, and he hadn't got time to think it all over. So he didn't want to commit himself definitely to the statement that the key was either outside or inside. He wanted to leave it vague. It was safest that way. "'I see.' said Bill slowly. But his mind was elsewhere. He was wondering suddenly about Cayley. Cayley was just an ordinary man, like himself. Bill had little jokes with him sometimes. Not that Cayley was much of a hand at joking. Bill had helped him to sausages, played tennis with him, borrowed his tobacco, lent him a putter. And here was Antony saying that he was what? Well, not an ordinary man, anyway. A man with a secret. Perhaps a murderer. No, not a murderer. Not Cayley. That was rot, anyway. Why, they had played tennis together. Now then, Watson, said Antony suddenly, it's time you said something. I say, Tony, do you really mean it? Mean what? About Cayley. I mean what I said, Bill, no more. Well, what does it amount to? Simply that Robert Ablett died in the office this afternoon, and that Cayley knows exactly how he died. That's all. It doesn't follow that Cayley killed him. No, no, of course it doesn't. Bill gave a sigh of relief. He's just shielding Mark, what? I wonder. Well— isn't that the simplest explanation? It's the simplest if you're a friend of Cayley and want to let him down lightly. But then I'm not, you see. Why isn't it simple, anyhow? Well, let's have the explanation, then. And I'll undertake to give you a simpler one afterwards. Go on. Only remember the key is on the outside of the door to start with. Yes, well, I don't mind that. Mark goes in to see his brother, and they quarrel and all the rest of it, just as Cayley was saying. 
Cayley hears the shot, and in order to give Mark time to get away, locks the door, puts the key in his pocket, and pretends that Mark has locked the door, and that he can't get in. How's that? Hopeless, Watson. Hopeless. Why? How does Cayley know that it is Mark who has shot Robert, and not the other way round? Oh, said Bill, rather upset. Yes. He thought for a moment. All right. Say that Cayley has gone into the room first, and seen Robert on the ground. Well? Well, there you are. And what does he say to Mark? That it's a fine afternoon, and could he lend him a pocket-handkerchief? Or does he ask him what's happened? Well, of course. I suppose he asks what happened, said Bill reluctantly. And what does Mark say? Explains that the revolver went off accidentally during a struggle. Whereupon Cayley shields him by doing what, Bill? Encouraging him to do the damn silliest thing that any man could possibly do, confess his guilt by running away. No, that's rather hopeless, isn't it? Bill thought again. Well, he said reluctantly, suppose Mark confessed that he'd murdered his brother. That's better, Bill. Don't be afraid of getting away from the accident idea. Well, then, your new theory is this. Mark confesses to Cayley that he shot Robert on purpose, and Cayley decides, even at the risk of committing perjury and getting into trouble himself, to help Mark escape. Is that right? Bill nodded. Well, then, I want to ask you two questions. First, is it possible, as I said before dinner, that any man would commit such an idiotic murder, a murder that puts the rope so very tightly round his neck? Secondly, if Cayley is prepared to perjure himself for Mark, as he has to anyway now, wouldn't it be simpler for him to say that he was in the office all the time, and that Robert's death was accidental? Bill considered this carefully, and then nodded slowly again. Yes, my simple explanation is a washout, he said. Now, let's have yours. Antony did not answer him. He had begun to think about something quite different. End of chapter 8This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 9 Possibilities of a Croquet Set. What's the matter? said Bill sharply. Antony looked round at him with raised eyebrows. "'You've thought of something suddenly,' said Bill. "'What is it?' Antony laughed. "'My dear Watson,' he said, "'you aren't supposed to be as clever as this. "'Oh, you can't take me in. "'No? "'Well, I was wondering about this ghost of yours, Bill. "'It seems to me—' "'Oh, that!' Bill was profoundly disappointed. 
What on earth has the ghost got to do with it?' "'I don't know,' said Antony apologetically. "'I don't know what anything has got to do with it. I was just wondering. You shouldn't have brought me here if you didn't want me to think about the ghost. This is where she appeared, isn't it?' "'Yes.' Bill was distinctly short about it. "'How?' "'What?' "'I said, "'How?' "'How? How do ghosts appear? I don't know. They just appear.' "'Over four or five hundred yards of open park?' "'Well, but she had to appear here. Because this is where the original one, Lady Anne, you know, was supposed to walk.' "'Oh, never mind, Lady Anne.' A real ghost can do anything. But how did Miss Norris appear suddenly over five hundred yards of Bear Park? Bill looked at Antony with open mouth. I-I don't know, he stammered. We never thought of that. You would have seen her long before, wouldn't you, if she had come the way we came? Of course we should. And that would have spoiled it, rather. You would have had time to recognize her walk. Bill was interested now. That's rather funny, you know, Tony. We none of us thought of that. You're sure she didn't come across the park when none of you were looking? Quite. Because, you see, Betty and I were expecting her, and we kept looking round in case we saw her, so that we should all be playing with our backs to her. You and Miss Calladine were playing together? I say, however do you know that? Brilliant deductive reasoning. Well, then you suddenly saw her. Yes, she walked across that side of the lawn. He indicated the opposite side, nearer to the house. She couldn't have been hiding in the ditch. Do you call it the moat, by the way? Mark does. We don't among ourselves. No, she couldn't. Betty and I were here before the others, and walked round a bit. We should have seen her. Then she must have been hiding in the shed. Or do you call it the summer-house? We had to go there for the bowls, of course. She couldn't have been there. Oh. It's dashed funny, said Bill, after an interval for thought. But it doesn't really matter, does it? It has nothing to do with Robert. Hasn't it? I say, has it? said Bill, getting excited again. I don't know. We don't know what has or what hasn't, but it has got something to do with Miss Norris. And Miss Norris—he broke off suddenly. What about her? Well, you're all in it in a kind of way. And if something unaccountable happens to one of you a day or two before something unaccountable happens to the whole house, well, one is, well, interested. It was a good enough reason but it wasn't the reason he had been on the point of giving. "'I see. Well?' Antony knocked out his pipe and got up slowly. "'Well, then, let's find the way from the house by which Miss Norris came.' Bill jumped up eagerly. "'By Jove! Do you mean there's a secret passage?' "'A secluded passage, anyway. There must be.' "'I say, what fun! I love secret passages. Good Lord!' And this afternoon I was playing golf just like an ordinary merchant. What a life! Secret passages! They made their way down into the ditch. If an opening was to be found which led to the house, it would probably be on the house side of the green. 
and on the outside of the ditch. The most obvious place at which to begin the search was the shed where the bulls were kept. It was a tidy place, as anything in Mark's establishment would be. There were two boxes of croquet things, one of them with the lid open, as if the balls and mallets and hoops, neatly enough put away, though, had been recently used. A box of bowls, a small lawn-mower, a roller, and so forth. A seat ran along the back of it, whereon the bowls-players could sit when it rained. Antony tapped the wall at the back. "'This is where the passage ought to begin. It doesn't sound very hollow, does it?' "'It needn't begin here at all, need it?' said Bill, walking round with bent head and tapping the other walls. He was just too tall to stand upright in the shed. "'There's only one reason why it should, and that is that it would save us the trouble of looking anywhere else for it. Surely Mark didn't let you play croquet on his bowling green?' He pointed to the croquet things. "'He didn't encourage it at one time, but this year he got rather keen about it. There's really nowhere else to play. Personally, I hate the game. He wasn't very keen on bowls, you know.' but he liked calling it the bowling green, and surprising his visitors with it. Antony laughed. "'I love you on Mark,' he said. "'You're priceless.' He began to feel in his pockets for his pipe and tobacco, and then suddenly stopped and stiffened to attention. For a moment he stood listening, with his head on one side, holding up a finger to bid Bill listen too. "'What is it?' whispered Bill. Antony waved him to silence and remained listening. Very quietly he went down on his knees and listened again. Then he put his ear to the floor. He got up and dusted himself quickly, walked across to Bill and whispered in his ear, "'Footsteps! Somebody's coming! When I begin to talk, back me up!' Bill nodded. Antony gave him an encouraging pat on the back, and stepped firmly across to the box of bowls whistling loudly to himself. He took the bowls out, dropped one with a loud bang on the floor, said, "'Oh, Lord!' and went on. "'I say, Bill, I don't think I want to play bowls after all.' "'Well, why did you say you did?' grumbled Bill. Antony flashed a smile of appreciation at him. "'Well, I wanted to when I said I did, and now I don't want to. Then what do you want to do?' talk. "'Oh, right-o,' said Bill eagerly. "'There's a seat on the lawn. I saw it. Let's bring these things along, in case we want to play after all.' "'Right-o,' said Bill again. He felt safe with that, not wishing to commit himself until he knew what he was wanted to say. As they went across the lawn, Antony dropped the bowls and took out his pipe. "'Got a match?' he said loudly. As he bent his head over the match, he whispered, "'There'll be somebody listening to us. You take the Cayley view,' and then went on in his ordinary voice. "'I don't think much of your matches, Bill,' and struck another. They walked over to the seat and sat down. "'What a heavenly night,' said Antony. "'Ripping! I wonder where that poor devil Mark is now.' It's a rum business. You agree with Cayley that it was an accident? Yes. You see, I know Mark. Hmm. Antony, 
produced a pencil and a piece of paper, and began to write on his knee. But while he wrote, he talked. He said that he thought Mark had shot his brother in a fit of anger, and that Cayley knew, or anyhow guessed this, and had tried to give his cousin a chance of getting away. Mind you, I think he's right. I think it's what any of us would do. I shan't give it away, of course. But somehow, there are one or two little things which make me think that Mark really did shoot his brother. I mean, other than accidentally. Murdered him? Well, manslaughtered him, anyway. I may be wrong. Anyway, it's not my business. But why do you think so? Because of the keys? Oh, the keys are a washout. Still, it was a brilliant idea of mine, wasn't it? And it would have been rather a score for me if they had all been outside. He had finished his writing, and now passed the paper over to Bill. In the clear moonlight, the carefully printed letters could easily be read. Go on talking as if I were here. After a minute or two, turn round as if I were sitting on the grass behind you. But go on talking. I know you don't agree with me. Antony went on as Bill read, but you'll see that I'm right. Bill looked up and nodded eagerly. He had forgotten golf, and Betty, and all the other things which had made up his world lately. This was the real thing. This was life. Well, he began deliberately, the whole point is that I know Mark. Now Mark— But Antony was off the seat, and letting himself gently down into the ditch. His intention was to crawl round it until the shed came into sight. The footsteps which he had heard seemed to be underneath the shed. Probably there was a trap-door of some kind in the floor. Whoever it was would have heard their voices, and would probably think it worth while to listen to what they were saying. He might do this merely by opening the door a little, without showing himself, in which case Antony would have found the entrance to the passage, without any trouble to himself but it was probable that the listener would find it necessary to put his head outside in order to hear. And then Antony would be able to discover who it was. Moreover, if he should venture out of his hiding-place altogether, and peep at them over the top of the bank, the fact that Bill was talking over the back of the seat would mislead the watcher into thinking that Antony was still there, sitting on the grass, no doubt, behind the seat, swinging his legs over the side of the ditch. He walked quickly, but very silently, along the half-length of the bowling-green to the first corner, passed cautiously round, and then went even more carefully along the width of it, to the second corner. He could hear Bill hard at it, arguing from his knowledge of Mark's character, that this, that, and the other must have happened, and he smiled appreciatively to himself. Bill was a great conspirator with a hundred Watsons. As he approached the second corner, he slowed down, and did the last few yards on hands and knees. Then, lying at full length, inch by inch his head went round the corner. The shed was two or three yards to his left, on the opposite side of the ditch. From where he lay he could see almost entirely inside it. Everything seemed to be as they left it—the bowls-box, the, the lawn-mower, the roller— the open croquet-box, the— "'By Jove!' said Antony to himself. "'That's neat.' The lid of the other croquet-box was open, too. Bill was turning round now. 
his voice became more difficult to hear. "'You see what I mean?' he was saying. "'If Cayley—' And out of the second croquet box came Cayley's black head. Antony wanted to shout his applause. It was neat, devilish neat. For a moment he gazed, fascinated, at that wonderful new kind of croquet ball which had appeared so dramatically out of the box, and then reluctantly wiggled himself back. There was nothing to be gained by staying there, and a good deal to be lost, for Bill showed signs of running down. As quickly as he could Antony hurried round the ditch, and took up his place at the back of the seat. Then he stood up with a yawn, stretched himself, and said carelessly, "'Well, don't worry yourself about it, Bill, old man. I dare say you're right. You know Mark, and I don't. And that's the difference. Shall we have a game, or shall we go to bed?' Bill looked at him for inspiration, and receiving it said, "'Oh, just let's have one game, shall we?' "'Right you are,' said Antony. But Bill was much too excited to take the game which followed very seriously. Antony, on the other hand, seemed to be thinking of nothing but bowls. He played with great deliberation for ten minutes, and then announced that he was going to bed. Bill looked at him anxiously. "'It's all right,' laughed Antony. "'You can talk if you want to. Just let's put him away first, though.' They made their way down to the shed and while Bill was putting the bowls away, Antony tried the lid of the closed croquet box. As he expected, it was locked. "'Now then,' said Bill, as they were walking back to the house again, "'I'm simply bursting to know. Who was it?' Cayley. "'Good Lord, where?' "'Inside one of the croquet boxes.' "'Don't be an ass.' "'It's quite true, Bill.' He told the other what he had seen. "'But aren't we going to have a look at it?' asked Bill, in great disappointment. "'I'm longing to explore, aren't you?' "'Tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. We shall see Cayley coming along this way directly. Besides, I want to get in from the other end, if I can. I doubt very much if we can do it this end without giving ourselves away. Look, there's Cayley.' They could see him coming along the drive towards them. When they were a little closer, they waved to him, and he waved back. "'I wondered where you were,' he said as he got up to them. "'I rather thought you might be along this way. What about bed?' "'Bed it is,' said Antony. "'We've been playing bowls,' added Bill. "'And talking, and—and playing bowls. Ripping night, isn't it?' But he left the rest of the conversation as they wandered back to the house to Antony. He wanted to think. There seemed to be no doubt now that Cayley was a villain. Bill had never been familiar with a villain before. It didn't seem quite fair of Cayley, somehow. He was taking rather a mean advantage of his friends. A lot of funny people there were in the world—funny people with secrets. Look at Tony. That first time he had met him in a tobacconist's shop. Anybody would have thought he was a tobacconist's assistant and Cayley. Anybody would have thought that Cayley was an ordinary, decent sort of person. And Mark! Dash it! One could never be sure of anybody! Now, Robert was different. Everybody had always said that Robert was a shady fellow. But what on earth had Miss Norris got to do with it? 
What had Miss Norris got to do with it? This was a question which Antony had already asked himself that afternoon, and it seemed to him now that he had found the answer. As he lay in bed that night he reassembled his ideas, and looked at them in the new light which the events of the evening threw upon the dark corners in his brain. Of course it was natural that Cayley should want to get rid of his guests as soon as the tragedy was discovered. He would want this for their own sake as well as for his. But he had been a little too quick about suggesting it, and about seeing the suggestion carried out. They had been bustled off as soon as they could be packed. The suggestion that they were in his hands, to go or stay as he wished, could have been left safely to them. As it was, they had been given no alternative, and Miss Norris, who had proposed to catch an after-dinner train at the junction, in the obvious hope that she might have, in this way, a dramatic cross-examination at the hands of some keen-eyed detective, was encouraged tactfully, but quite firmly, to travel by the earlier train with the others. Antony had felt that Cayley, in the tragedy which had suddenly befallen the house, ought to have been equally indifferent to her presence or absence. But he was not. And Antony assumed from this that Cayley was very much alive to the necessity for her absence. Why? Well, that question was not to be answered offhand. But the fact that it was so had made Antony interested in her, and it was for this reason that he had followed up so alertly Bill's casual mention of her in connection with the dressing-up business. He felt that he wanted to know a little more about Miss Norris, and the part she had played in the Red House Circle. By sheer luck, as it seemed to him, he had stumbled on the answer to his question. Miss Norris was hurried away because she knew about the secret passage. The passage, then, had something to do with the mystery of Robert's death. Miss Norris had used it in order to bring off her dramatic appearance as the ghost. Possibly she had discovered it for herself. Possibly Mark had revealed it to her secretly one day never guessing that she would make so unkind a use of it later on. Possibly Cayley, having been let into the joke of the dressing-up, had shown her how she could make her appearance on the bowling-green even more mysterious and supernatural. One way or another she knew about the secret passage, so she must be hurried away. Why? Because if she stayed and talked, she might make some innocent mention of it and Cayley did not want any mention of it. Why again? Obviously, because the passage, or even the mere knowledge of its existence, might provide a clue. I wonder if Mark's hiding there, thought Antony, and he went to sleep. End of chapter 9「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 10. Mr. Gillingham Talks Nonsense. Antony came down in a very good humour to breakfast next morning, and found that his host was before him. Cayley looked up from his letters and nodded. 
"'Any word of Mr. Ablett, of Mark?' said Antony, as he poured out his coffee. "'No. The inspector wants to drag the lake this afternoon.' "'Oh! Is there a lake?' There was just the flicker of a smile on Cayley's face, but it disappeared as quickly as it came. "'Well, it's really a pond,' he said. "'But it was called the lake.' "'By Mark,' thought Antony. Aloud, he said, "'What do they expect to find?' "'They think that Mark—' He broke off and shrugged his shoulders. "'May have drowned himself knowing that he couldn't get away, and knowing that he had compromised himself by trying to get away at all?' "'Yes, I suppose so,' said Cayley slowly. "'I should have thought he would have given himself more of a run for his money. After all, he had a revolver.' If he was determined not to be taken alive, he could always have prevented that. Couldn't he have caught a train to London before the police knew anything about it? He might just have managed it. There was a train. They would have noticed him at Waldheim, of course. But he might have managed it at Stanton. He's not so well known there, naturally. The inspector has been inquiring. Nobody seems to have seen him. There are sure to be people who will say they did later on. There was never a missing man yet, but a dozen people come forward who swear to have seen him at a dozen different places at the same time. Cayley smiled. Yes, that's true. Anyhow, he wants to drag the pond first. He added dryly, From what I've read of detective stories, inspectors always do want to drag the pond first. Is it deep? "'Quite deep enough,' said Cayley as he got up. On his way to the door he stopped and looked at Antony. "'I'm so sorry that we're keeping you here like this, but it will only be until tomorrow. The inquest is tomorrow afternoon. Do amuse yourself how you like till then. Beverly will look after you.' "'Thanks very much. I shall really be quite all right.' Antony went on with his breakfast. Perhaps it was true that inspectors liked dragging ponds. But the question was, did Cayley's like having them dragged? Was Cayley anxious about it, or quite indifferent? He certainly did not seem to be anxious. But he could hide his feelings very easily beneath that heavy, solid face. And it was not often that the real Cayley peeped out. Just a little too eager once or twice, perhaps— but there was nothing to be learnt from it this morning. Perhaps he knew that the pond had no secrets to give up. After all, inspectors were always dragging ponds. Bill came in noisily. Bill's face was an open book. Excitement was written all over it. "'Well?' he said eagerly, as he sat down to the business of the meal. "'What are we going to do this morning?' "'Not talk so loudly, for one thing.' said Antony. Bill looked about him apprehensively. Was Cayley under the table, for example? After last night one never knew. "'Is—er—' he raised his eyebrows. "'No. But one doesn't want to shout. One should modulate the voice, my dear William, while breathing gently from the hips. Thus one avoids those chest notes which have betrayed many a secret. In other words, Pass the toast. You seem bright this morning. 
I am. Very bright. Cayley noticed it. Cayley said, Were it not that I have other business, I would come gathering nuts and may with thee. Fain would I gyrate round the mulberry bush and hop upon the little hills. But the waters of Jordan encompass me, and Inspector Birch tarries outside with his shrimping net. My friend William Beverley will attend thee anon. Farewell, a long farewell to all thy grape-nuts. He then left up centre. Enter W. Beverley, R. Are you often like this at breakfast? Almost invariably, said he, with his mouth full, exit W. Beverley, L. It's a touch of the sun, I suppose, said Bill, shaking his head sadly. It's the sun and the moon and the stars all acting together on an empty stomach. Do you know anything about the stars, Mr. Beverley? Do you know anything about Orion's belt, for instance? And why isn't there a star called Beverley's belt? Or a novel? He said, masticating. Re-enter W. Beverley through trapdoor. Talking about trapdoors. Don't, said Antony, getting up. Some talk of Alexander and some of Hercules, but nobody talks about— What's the Latin for trapdoor? Mensa, a table? You might get it from that. "'Well, Mr. Beverley,' and he slapped him heartily on the back as he went past him, "'I shall see you later. Cayley says that you will amuse me, but so far you have not made me laugh once. You must try and be more amusing when you have finished your breakfast. But don't hurry. Let the upper mandibles have time to do the work.' With those words, Mr. Gillingham then left the spacious apartment. Bill continued his breakfast with a slightly bewildered air. He did not know that Cayley was smoking a cigarette outside the window behind him. Not listening, perhaps. Possibly not even overhearing. But within sight of Antony, who was not going to take any risks. So he went on with his breakfast, reflecting that Antony was a rum fellow, and wondering if he had dreamed only of the amazing things which had happened the day before. Antony went up to his bedroom to fetch his pipe. It was occupied by a housemaid, and he made a polite apology for disturbing her. Then he remembered. "'Is it Elsie?' he asked, giving her a friendly smile. "'Yes, sir,' she said, shy but proud. She had no doubts as to why it was that she had achieved such notoriety. "'It was you who heard Mr. Mark yesterday, wasn't it?' I hope the inspector was nice to you. Yes, thank you, sir. It's my turn now. You wait, murmured Antony to himself. Yes, sir, nasty-like, meaning to say his chance had come. I wonder. Well, that's what I heard, sir, truly. Antony looked at her thoughtfully and nodded. Yes, I wonder. I wonder why. "'Why, what, sir?' "'Oh, lots of things, Elsie. It was quite an accident your being outside just then.' Elsie blushed. She had not forgotten what Mrs. Stevens had said about it. "'Quite, sir. In the general way I use the other stairs. Of course.' He had found his pipe and was about to go downstairs again, when she stopped him. "'I beg your pardon, sir, but will there be an inquest?' "'Oh, yes.' "'Tomorrow, I think. "'Shall I have to give my evidence, sir?' "'Of course. 
there's nothing to be frightened of. I did hear it, sir, truly. Why, of course you did. Who says you didn't? Some of the others, sir, Mrs. Stevens and all. Oh, that's just because they're jealous, said Antony with a smile. He was glad to have spoken to her, because he had recognized at once the immense importance of her evidence. To the inspector, no doubt, it had seemed only of importance, in that it had shown Mark to have adopted something of a threatening attitude towards his brother. To Antony it had much more significance. It was the only trustworthy evidence that Mark had been in the office at all that afternoon. For who saw Mark go into the office? Only Cayley. And if Cayley had been hiding the truth about the keys, why should he not be hiding the truth about Mark's entry into the office? Obviously all Cayley's evidence went for nothing. Some of it, no doubt, was true, but he was giving it, both truth and falsehood, with a purpose. What the purpose was, Antony did not know as yet. To shield Mark, to shield himself, even to betray Mark, it might be any of these. But since his evidence was given for his own ends, it was impossible that it could be treated as evidence of an impartial and trustworthy onlooker. Such, for instance, as Elsie appeared to be. Elsie's evidence, however, seemed to settle the point. Mark had gone into the office to see his brother. Elsie had heard them both talking, and then Antony and Cayley had found the body of Robert. And the inspector was going to drag the pond. But certainly Elsie's evidence did not prove anything more than the mere presence of Mark in the room. "'It's my turn now. You wait.' That was not an immediate threat. It was a threat for the future— if Mark had shot his brother immediately afterwards, it must have been an accident, the result of a struggle, say, provoked by that nasty-like tone of voice. Nobody would say you wait to a man who was just going to be shot. You wait meant you wait and see what's going to happen to you later on. The owner of the Red House had had enough of his brother's sponging, his brother's blackmail. Now it was Mark's turn to get a bit of his own back. Let Robert just wait a bit, and he would see. The conversation which Elsie had overheard might have meant something like this. It couldn't have meant murder. Anyway, not murder of Robert by Mark. It's a funny business, thought Antony. The one obvious solution is so easy and yet so wrong and I've got a hundred things in my head, and I can't fit them together. And this afternoon will make a hundred and one. I mustn't forget this afternoon. He found Bill in the hall and proposed a stroll. Bill was only too ready. "'Where do you want to go?' he asked. "'I don't much mind. Show me the park.' "'Right-o!' They walked out together. "'What's an old man?' said Antony, as soon as they were away from the house. "'You really mustn't talk so loudly indoors. There was a gentleman outside just behind you all the time.' "'Oh, I say,' said Bill, going pink, "'I'm awfully sorry. So that's why you were talking such rot.' "'Partly, yes, and partly because I do feel rather bright this morning. We're going to have a busy day.' "'Are we really?' 
What are we going to do? They're going to drag the pond. A beggar's pardon, the lake. Where is the lake? We're on the way to it now, if you'd like to see it. We may as well look at it. Do you haunt the lake much in the ordinary way? Oh, no, rather not. There's nothing to do there. You can't bathe? Well, I shouldn't care to. Too dirty. I see. This is the way we came yesterday, isn't it? The way to the village? Yes. We go off a bit to the right directly. What are they dragging it for? Mark. Oh, rot! said Bill uneasily. He was silent for a little, and then, forgetting his uncomfortable thoughts in his sudden remembrance of the exciting times they were having, said eagerly, I say, when are we going to look for that passage? We can't do very much while Cayley's in the house. What about this afternoon when they're dragging the pond? He's sure to be there. Antony shook his head. There's something I must do this afternoon, he said. Of course, we might have time for both. Has Cayley got to be out of the house for the other thing, too? Well, I think he ought to be. I say, is it anything rather exciting? I don't know. It might be rather exciting. I dare say I could do it at some other time, but I rather fancy it at three o'clock somehow. I've been specially keeping it back for then. I say, what fun! You do want me, don't you? Of course I do. Only, Bill, don't talk about things inside the house unless I begin. There's a good Watson. I won't, I swear I won't. They had come to the pond, Mark's Lake, and they walked silently round it. When they had made the circle, Antony sat down on the grass and relit his pipe. Bill followed his example. Well, Mark isn't there, said Antony. No, said Bill. At least, I don't quite see why you know he isn't. It isn't knowing, it's guessing, said Antony rapidly. It's much easier to shoot yourself than to drown yourself. And if Mark had wanted to shoot himself in the water, with some idea of not letting the body be found, he'd have put big stones in his pockets, and the only big stones are near the water's edge. And they would have left Mark's, and they haven't, and therefore he didn't, and— oh. Bother the pond. That can wait till this afternoon. Bill, where does the secret passage begin? Well, that's what we've got to find out, isn't it? Yes. You see, my idea is this. He explained his reasons for thinking that the secret of the passage was concerned in some way with the secret of Robert's death, and went on. My theory is that Mark discovered the passage about a year ago the time when he began to get keen on croquet. The passage came out into the floor of the shed, and probably it was Cayley's idea to put a croquet box over the trapdoor, so as to hide it more completely. You know, when once you've discovered a secret yourself, it always seems as if it must be so obvious to everybody else. I can imagine that Mark loved having his little secret all to himself, and to Cayley, of course, but Cayley wouldn't count and they must have had great fun fixing it up, and making it more difficult for other people to find out. Well, then, when Miss Norris was going to dress up, Cayley gave it away. Probably he told her that she could never get down to the bowling green without being discovered, and then, perhaps, 
showed that he knew there was one way in which she could do it, and she wormed the secret out of him somehow. But this was two or three days before Robert turned up. Exactly. I am not suggesting that there was anything sinister about the passage in the first place. It was just a little private bit of romance and adventure for Mark, three days ago. He didn't even know that Robert was coming. But somehow the passage has been used since, in connection with Robert. Perhaps Mark escaped that way. Perhaps he's hiding there now. And if so, then the only person who could give him away was Miss Norris. And she, of course, would only do it innocently, not knowing that the passage had anything to do with it. So it was safer to have her out of the way? Yes. But look here, Tony. Why do you want to bother about this end of it? We can always get in at the bowling green end. I know, but if we do that we shall have to do it openly. It will mean breaking open the box and letting Cayley know that we've done it. You see, Bill, if we don't find anything out for ourselves in the next day or two, we've got to tell the police what we have found out, and then they can explore the passage for themselves. But I don't want to do that yet. Rather not. So we've got to carry on secretly for a bit. It's the only way. He smiled and added, And it's much more fun. Rather, Bill chuckled to himself. Very well. Where does the secret passage begin? End of chapter 10「This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Kristen Hughes. The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter 11. The Reverend Theodore Usher. "'There's one thing which we have got to realize at once,' said Antony and that is that if we don't find it easily, we shan't find it at all. You mean that we shan't have time? Neither time nor opportunity, which is rather a consoling thought to a lazy person like me. But it makes it much harder if we can't really look properly. Harder to find, yes, but so much easier to look. For instance, the passage might begin in Cayley's bedroom. Well, now we know that it doesn't. "'We don't know anything of the sort,' protested Bill. "'We know for the purposes of our search. Obviously we can't go trailing into Cayley's bedroom and tapping his wardrobes. And obviously, therefore, if we are going to look for it at all, we must assume that it doesn't begin there.' "'Oh, I see.' Bill chewed a piece of grass thoughtfully. "'Anyhow, it wouldn't begin on an upstairs floor, would it?' Probably not. Well, we're getting on. You can wash out the kitchen, and all that part of the house, said Bill after more thought. We can't go there. Right. And the cellars, if there are any. Well, that doesn't leave us much. No. Of course, it's only a hundred to one chance that we find it. 
but what we want to consider is which is the most likely place of the few places in which we can look safely. All it amounts to, said Bill, is the living rooms downstairs, dining room, library, hall, billiard room, and the office rooms. Yes, that's all. Well, the office is the most likely, isn't it? Yes, except for one thing. What's that? Well, it's on the wrong side of the house. One would expect the passage to start from the nearest place to which it is going. Why make it longer by going under the house first? Yes, that's true. Well, then, you think the dining-room or the library? Yes, and the library for choice. I mean, for our choice. There are always servants going into dining-rooms. We shouldn't have much of a chance of exploring properly in there. Besides, there's another thing to remember. Mark has kept this a secret for a year. Could he have kept it a secret in the dining-room? Could Miss Norris have gotten into the dining-room and used the secret door, just after dinner, without being seen? It would have been much too risky. Bill got up eagerly. "'Come along,' he said. "'Let's try the library. If Cayley comes in, we can always pretend we're choosing a book.' Antony got up slowly took his arm and walked back to the house with him. The library was worth going into, passages or no passages. Antony could never resist another person's bookshelves. As soon as he went into the room, he found himself wandering round it to see what books the author read, or, more likely, did not read, but kept for the air which they lent to the house. Mark had prided himself on his library. It was a mixed collection of books— books which he had inherited both from his father and from his patron, books which he had bought because he was interested in them, or, if not in them, in the authors to whom he wished to lend his patronage, books which he had ordered in beautifully bound editions, partly because they looked well on his shelves, lending a noble colour to his rooms, partly because no man of culture should ever be without them, old editions, new editions, expensive books, cheap books a library in which everybody, whatever his taste, could be sure of finding something to suit him. "'And which is your particular fancy, Bill?' said Antony, looking from one shelf to another. "'Or are you always playing billiards?' "'I have a look at badminton sometimes,' said Bill. "'It's over in that corner there.' He waved a hand. "'Over here,' said Antony, going to it. "'Yes.' He corrected himself suddenly. "'Oh, no, it's not. It's over there on the right now. Mark had a grand rearrangement of his library about a year ago. It took him more than a week, he told us. He's got such a frightful lot, hasn't he?' "'Now that's very interesting,' said Antony as he sat down and filled his pipe again. There was indeed a frightful lot of books. The four walls of the library were plastered with them from floor to ceiling save only where the door and the two windows insisted on living their own life, even though an illiterate one. To Bill it seemed the most hopeless room of any in which to look for a secret opening. "'We shall have to take every blessed book down,' he said, "'before we can be certain that we haven't missed it.' "'Anyway,' said Antony, "'if we take them down one at a time, Nobody can suspect us of sinister designs. 
After all, what does one go into a library for except to take books down? But there's such a frightful lot. Antony's pipe was now going satisfactorily, and he got up and walked leisurely to the end of the wall opposite the door. Well, let's have a look, he said, and see if they are so very frightful. Hello, here's your badminton. You often read that, you say? If I read anything. Yes. He looked down and up the shelf. Sport and travel, chiefly. I like books of travel, don't you? They're pretty dull, as a rule. Well, anyhow, some people like them very much, said Antony reproachfully. He moved on to the next row of shelves. The drama. The restoration dramatists. You can have most of them. Still, as you well remark, many people seem to love them. Shaw, Wilde, Robertson. I like reading plays, Bill. There are not many people who do, but those who do are usually very keen. Let us pass on. I say, we haven't too much time, said Bill, restlessly. We haven't. That's why we aren't wasting any. Poetry. Who reads poetry nowadays? Bill, when did you last read Paradise Lost? Never. I thought not. And when did Miss Calladine last read The Excursion Aloud to You? As a matter of fact, Betty, Miss Calladine, happens to be jolly keen on—what's the beggar's name? Never mind his name. You have said quite enough. We pass on. He moved on to the next shelf. Biography. Oh, lots of it. I love biographies. Are you a member of the Johnson Club? I bet Mark is. Memories of many courts. I'm sure Mrs. Calladine reads that. Anyway, biographies are just as interesting as most novels, so why linger? We pass on. He went to the next shelf, and then gave a sudden whistle. Hello, hello. What's the matter? said Bill, rather peevishly. "'Stand back there. Keep the crowd back, Bill. We are getting amongst it. Sermons, as I live. Sermons. Was Mark's father a clergyman, or does Mark take to them naturally?' "'His father was a parson, I believe.' "'Oh, yes, I know he was.' "'Ah, then these are father's books. Half Hours with the Infinite.' I must order that from the library when I get back. The Lost Sheep. Jones on the Trinity. The Epistles of St. Paul Explained. Oh, Bill, we're amongst it. The Narrow Way being sermons by the Reverend Theodore Usher. Hello! What is the matter? William, I am inspired. Stand by. He took down the Reverend Theodore Usher's classic work looked at it with a happy smile for a moment, and then gave it to Bill. Here, hold Usher for a bit. Bill took the book obediently. No, give it me back. Just go out into the hall and see if you can hear Cayley anywhere. Say hello loudly if you do. Bill went out quickly, listened, and came back. It's all right. Good. He took the book out of its shelf again. Now then. You can hold Usher. Hold him in the left hand so, with the right or dexter hand, grasp this shelf firmly so, 
and when I say pull, pull gradually. Got that? Bill nodded, his face alight with excitement. Good. Antony put his hand into the space left by the stout usher, and fingered the hack of the shelf. Pull, he said. Bill pulled. Now just go on pulling like that. I shan't get it directly. Not hard, you know, but just keep up the strain. His fingers went at it again busily, and then, suddenly, the whole row of shelves from top to bottom swung gently open towards them. "'Good Lord!' said Bill, letting go of the shelf in his amazement. Antony pushed the shelves back, extracted Usher from Bill's fingers, replaced him, and then, taking Bill by the arm, led him to the sofa and deposited him in it. Standing in front of him, he bowed gravely. "'Child's play, Watson,' he said. "'Child's play.' "'How on earth?' Antony laughed happily and sat down on the sofa beside him. "'You don't really want it explained,' he said, smacking him on the knee. "'You're just being Watsonish. It's very nice of you, of course, and I appreciate it.' "'No, but really, Tony!' "'Oh, my dear Bill!' He smoked silently for a little, and then went on. It's what I was saying just now, a secret is a secret until you have discovered it, and as soon as you have discovered it, you wonder why everybody else isn't discovering it, and how it could ever have been a secret at all. This passage has been here for years, with an opening at one end into the library, and at the other end into the shed. Then Mark discovered it, and immediately he felt that everybody else must discover it, so he made the shed end more difficult by putting the croquet box there, and this end more difficult by—' He stopped and looked at the other. "'By what, Bill?' But Bill was being Watsonish. "'What?' "'Obviously by rearranging his books. He happened to take out The Life of Nelson or Three Men in a Boat, or whatever it was, and by the merest chance discovered the secret.' Naturally, he felt that everybody else would be taking down the life of Nelson or three men in a boat. Naturally, he felt that the secret would be safer if nobody ever interfered with that shelf at all. When you said that the books had been rearranged a year ago, just about the time the croquet box came into existence, of course, I guessed why. So I looked about for the dullest books I could find, the books nobody ever read. Obviously, the collection of sermon books of a mid-Victorian clergyman was the shelf we wanted. Yes, I see. But why were you so certain of the particular place? Well, he had to mark the particular place by some book. I thought that the joke of putting the narrow way just over the entrance to the passage might appeal to him. Apparently it did. Bill nodded to himself thoughtfully several times. Yes, that's very neat he said. "'You're a clever devil, Tony.' Tony laughed. "'You encourage me to think so, which is bad for me, but very delightful.' "'Well, come on, then,' said Bill, and he got up and held out a hand. "'Come on where? To explore the passage, of course.' Antony shook his head. "'Why ever not?' "'Well, what do you expect to find there?' "'I don't know.' But you seem to think that we might find something that would help. Suppose we find Mark, said Antony quietly. I say, 
Do you really think he's there? Suppose he is. Well, then, there we are. Antony walked over to the fireplace, knocked out the ashes of his pipe, and turned back to Bill. He looked at him gravely without speaking. "'What are you going to say to him?' he said at last. "'How do you mean? Are you going to arrest him, or help him to escape?' "'I—I—well, of course I—' began Bill, stammering, and then ended lamely. "'Well, I don't know.' "'Exactly. We've got to make up our minds, haven't we?' Bill didn't answer. Very much disturbed in his mind, he walked restlessly about the room, frowning to himself, stopping now and then at the newly discovered door, and looking at it as if he were trying to learn what lay behind it. Which side was he on, if it came to choosing sides? Marks? Or the laws? "'You know you can't just say, oh, er, hello to him,' said Antony, breaking rather appropriately into his thoughts. Bill looked up at him with a start. "'Nor,' went on Antony, "'can you say, "'This is my friend Mr. Gillingham, who is staying with you. "'We were just going to have a game of bowls.' "'Yes, it's dashed difficult. "'I don't know what to say. "'I've been rather forgetting about Mark.' "'He wandered over to the window "'and looked out onto the lawns. "'There was a gardener clipping the grass edges.' No reason why the lawn should be untidy just because the master of the house had disappeared. It was going to be a hot day again. Dash it! Of course he had forgotten Mark. How could he think of him as an escaped murderer, a fugitive from justice, when everything was going on just as it did yesterday, and the sun was shining just as it did when they all drove off to their gulf, only twenty-four hours ago? How could he help feeling that this was not real tragedy, but merely a jolly kind of detective game that he and Antony were playing? He turned back to his friend. "'All the same,' he said. "'You wanted to find the passage, and now you've found it. Aren't you going into it at all?' Antony took his arm. "'Let's go outside again,' he said. "'We can't go into it now, anyhow. It's too risky with Cayley about.' Bill, I feel like you, just a little bit frightened. But what I'm frightened of I don't quite know. Anyway, you want to go on with it, don't you? Yes, said Bill firmly. We must. Then we'll explore the passage this afternoon, if we get the chance. And if we don't get the chance, then we'll try it tonight. They walked across the hall and out into the sunlight again. "'Do you really think we might find Mark hiding there?' asked Bill. "'It's possible,' said Antony. "'Either Mark or—' He pulled himself up quickly. "'No,' he murmured to himself. "'I won't let myself think that. Not yet, anyway. It's too horrible.'" End of chapter 11「
The Red House Mystery by A. A. Milne. Chapter Twelve A Shadow on the Wall. In the twenty or so hours at his disposal, Inspector Birch had been busy. He had telegraphed to London a complete description of Mark in the brown flannel suit which he had last been seen wearing. He had made inquiries at Stanton as to whether anybody answering to this description had been seen leaving by the 420, and though the evidence which had been volunteered to him had been inconclusive, it made it possible that Mark had indeed caught that train, and had arrived in London before the police at the other end had been ready to receive him. But the fact that it was market-day at Stanton, and that the little town would be more full than usual of visitors, made it less likely that either the departure of Mark by the 420, or the arrival of Robert by the 210 earlier in the afternoon, would have been particularly noticed. As Antony had said to Cayley, there would always be somebody ready to hand the police a circumstantial story of the movements of any man in whom the police were interested. That Robert had come by the 210 seemed fairly certain. To find out more about him in time for the inquest would be difficult. All that was known about him in the village where he and Mark had lived as boys bore out the evidence of Cayley. He was an unsatisfactory son, and he had been hurried off to Australia, nor had he been seen since in the village. Whether there were any more substantial grounds of quarrel between the two brothers than that the younger one was at home and well-to-do, while the elder was poor and an exile, was not known. Nor, as far as the inspector could see, was it likely to be known until Mark was captured. The discovery of Mark was all that mattered immediately. Dragging the pond might not help towards this, but it would certainly give the impression in court tomorrow that Inspector Birch was handling the case with zeal. And if only the revolver with which the deed was done was brought to the surface, his trouble would be well repaid. Inspector Birch produces the weapon would make an excellent headline in the local paper. He was feeling well satisfied with himself, therefore, as he walked to the pond, where his men were waiting for him, and quite in the mood for a little pleasant talk with Mr. Gillingham and his friend Mr. Beverley. He gave them a cheerful good afternoon, and added with a smile, "'Coming to help us?' "'You don't really want us,' said Antony, smiling back at him. "'You can come if you like.' Antony gave a little shudder. "'You can tell me afterwards what you find,' he said. "'By the way,' he added, "'I hope the landlord at the George gave me a good character.' The inspector looked at him quickly. "'Now how on earth do you know anything about that?' Antony bowed to him gravely. "'Because I guessed that you were a very efficient member of the force.' The inspector laughed. "'Well,' You came out all right, Mr. Gillingham. You got a clean bill. But I had to make certain about you. Of course you did. Well, I wish you luck. But I don't think you'll find much at the pond. It's rather out of the way, isn't it, for anybody running away? That's just what I told Mr. Cayley when he called my attention to the pond. However, we shan't do any harm by looking. It's the unexpected that's the most likely in this sort of case." "'You're quite right, Inspector. Well, we mustn't keep you. Good afternoon.' And Antony smiled pleasantly at him. "'Good afternoon, sir.' "'Good afternoon,' said Bill. 
Antony stood looking after the inspector as he strode off, silent for so long that Bill shook him by the arm at last, and asked him rather crossly what was the matter. Antony shook his head slowly from side to side. "'I don't know. I really don't know. It's too devilish what I keep thinking. He can't be as cold-blooded as that.' "'Who?' Without answering, Antony led the way back to the garden seat on which they had been sitting. He sat there with his head in his hands. "'Oh, I hope they find something,' he murmured. "'Oh, I hope they do.' "'In the pond?' "'Yes.' "'But what?' "'Anything, Bill, anything.' Bill was annoyed. "'I say, Tony, this won't do. You really mustn't be so damned mysterious. What's happened to you suddenly?' Antony looked up at him in surprise. "'Didn't you hear what he said?' "'What particularly?' "'That it was Cayley's idea to drag the pond.' "'Oh! Oh, I say!' Bill was rather excited again. "'You mean that he's hidden something there? Some false clue which he wants the police to find?' "'I hope so,' said Antony earnestly. "'But I'm afraid.' He stopped short. "'Afraid of what?' "'Afraid that he hasn't hidden anything there. Afraid that—well?' "'What's the safest place in which to hide anything very important?' "'Somewhere where nobody will look.' "'There's a better place than that.' "'What?' "'Somewhere where everybody has already looked.' "'By Jove!' "'You mean that as soon as the pond has been dragged, Cayley will hide something there?' "'Yes, I'm afraid so.' "'But why afraid?' "'Because I think that it must be something very important, something which couldn't easily be hidden anywhere else.' "'What?' asked Bill eagerly. Antony shook his head. "'No, I'm not going to talk about it yet. We can wait and see what the inspector finds.' He may find something—I don't know what—something that Cayley has put there for him to find. But if he doesn't, then it will be because Cayley is going to hide something there tonight. What? asked Bill again. You will see what, Bill, said Antony, because we shall be there. Are we going to watch him? Yes, if the inspector finds nothing. That's good, said Bill. If it were a question of Cayley or the law, he was quite decided as to which side he was taking. Previous to the tragedy of yesterday, he had got on well enough with both of the cousins, without being in the least intimate with either. Indeed, of the two he preferred perhaps the silent, solid Cayley to the more volatile Mark. Cayley's qualities, as they appeared to Bill, may have been chiefly negative— but even if this merit lay in the fact that he never exposed whatever weakness he may have had, this is an excellent quality in a fellow-guest, or, if you like, fellow-host, in a house where one is continually visiting. Mark's weaknesses, on the other hand, were very plain to the eye, and Bill had seen a good deal of them. Yet, though he had hesitated to define his position that morning in regard to Mark, he did not hesitate to place himself on the side of the law against Cayley. Mark, after all, had done him no harm, but Cayley had committed an unforgivable offence. Cayley had listened secretly to a private conversation between himself and Tony, 
Let Cayley hang if the law demanded it. Antony looked at his watch and stood up. "'Come along,' he said. "'It's time for that job I spoke about.' "'The passage?' said Bill eagerly. "'No. The thing which I said that I had to do this afternoon.' "'Oh, of course. What is it?' Without saying anything, Antony led the way indoors to the office. It was three o'clock, and at three o'clock yesterday Antony and Cayley had found the body. At a few minutes after three he had been looking out of the window of the adjoining room, and had been surprised suddenly to find the door open and Cayley behind him. He had vaguely wondered at the time why he had expected the door to be shut, but he had had no time then to worry the thing out, and he had promised himself to look into it at his leisure afterwards. Possibly it meant nothing. Possibly, if it meant anything, he could have found out its meaning by a visit to the office that morning. But he had felt that he would be more likely to recapture the impressions of yesterday if he chose as far as possible the same conditions for his experiment. So he had decided that three o'clock that afternoon should find him once more in the office. As he went into the room, followed by Bill, he felt it almost as a shock that there was now no body of Robert lying there between the two doors. But there was a dark stain which showed where the dead man's head had been, and Antony knelt down over it, as he had knelt twenty-four hours before. "'I want to go through it again,' he said. "'You must be Cayley. Cayley said he would get some water. I remember thinking that water wasn't much good to a dead man and that probably he was only too glad to do anything rather than nothing. He came back with a wet sponge and a handkerchief. I suppose he got the handkerchief from the chest of drawers. Wait a bit. He got up and went into the adjoining room, looked round it, pulled open a drawer or two, and after shutting all the doors, came back to the office. The sponge is there, and there are handkerchiefs in the top right-hand drawer. Now then, Bill, just pretend you're Cayley. You've just said something about water, and you get up. Feeling that it was all a little uncanny, Bill, who had been kneeling beside his friend, got up and walked out. Antony, as he had done on the previous day, looked up after him as he went. Bill turned into the room on the right, opened the drawer and got the handkerchiefs, damped the sponge and came back. "'Well?' he said wonderingly. Antony shook his head. "'It's all different,' he said. "'For one thing, you made a devil of a noise, and Cayley didn't. "'Perhaps you weren't listening when Cayley went in.' "'I wasn't, but I should have heard him, if I could have heard him, "'and I should have remembered afterwards.' "'Perhaps Cayley shut the door after him.' "'Wait!' He pressed his hand over his eyes and thought. It wasn't anything which he had heard, but something which he had seen. He tried desperately hard to see it again. He saw Cayley getting up, opening the door from the office, leaving it open and walking into the passage, turning to the door on the right, opening it, going in, and then—what did his eyes see after that? If they could only tell him again! Suddenly he jumped up, his face alight. "'Bill, I've got it!' he cried. "'What?' "'The shadow on the wall!' 
I was looking at the shadow on the wall. Oh, ass! Ten times ass! Bill looked uncomprehendingly at him. Antony took his arm and pointed to the wall of the passage. "'Look at the sunlight on it,' he said. "'That's because you've left the door of that room open. The sun comes straight in through the windows. Now I'm going to shut the door. Look. Do you see how the shadow moves across? That's what I saw. The shadow moving across as the door shut behind him. Bill, go in and shut the door behind you quite naturally. Quick.' Bill went out, and Antony knelt, watching eagerly. "'I thought so,' he cried. "'I knew it couldn't have been that.' "'What happened?' said Bill, coming back. "'Just what you would expect. The sunlight came, and the shadow moved back again all in one movement.' "'And what happened yesterday?' "'The sunlight stayed there, and then the shadow came very slowly back.' and there was no noise of the door being shut. Bill looked at him with startled eyes. "'By Jove! You mean that Cayley closed the door afterwards as an afterthought and very quietly so that you couldn't hear?' Antony nodded. "'Yes. That explains why I was surprised afterwards, when I went into the room, to find the door open behind me. You know how those doors with springs on them close?' the sort which old gentlemen have to keep out draughts? Yes. Just at first they hardly move at all, and then very, very slowly they swing to well. That was the way the shadow moved. And subconsciously I must have associated it with the movement of that sort of door. By Jove! He got up and dusted his knees. Now, Bill, just to make sure, go in and close the door like that. As an afterthought, you know and very quietly, so that I don't hear the click of it." Bill did as he was told, and then put his head out eagerly to hear what had happened. "'That was it,' said Antony, with absolute conviction. "'That was just what I saw yesterday.' He came out of the office and joined Bill in the little room. "'And now,' he said, "'let's try and find out what it was that Mr. Cayley was doing in here.' and why he had to be so very careful that his friend Mr. Gillingham didn't overhear him. End of chapter 12「Save big on brunch for mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for $2.49 a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.